0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we
1: got on today?
2: I'm really excited today because it's Tudors again. We know how everybody loves the Tudors. We have Helen Newsome with us and she's actually, rather than a historian, she's a historical linguist and she has a PhD in a very special lady that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Helen, hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Tell everyone who it is that you research.
1: It is Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scots older sister
2: (laughs) Mm. so everybody's always prattling on about Henry uh ratbag that he is but Margaret is like she is a star in her own right isn't she uh people but first of all people really need to forget about anything they think they know because they saw the Tudors because wasn't that two sisters of his mashed together to make that character
1: yeah, definitely along those lines and a bit of uh, fiction in there as well. So they um, talk about um, his young her, Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary Tudor, who marries the King of France, but they talk about them going off to Portugal. So the whole story is just completely wrong. <laughs> they also made her a big slut as well, really, didn't they? Yeah, I think it's safe to say they weren't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, not that
2: we're aware of. We're not quite Catherine Howard level. And we're not going to slut shame anyway. Although Katherine Howard was just silly, but she was young. (laughs) She was young and stupid. Um, But speaking of not slut shaming her, her family, however, are planning potential marriages for her when she's five. How is that possible?
1: Well, you've got to think about that. This is a completely different time. Um, People were married at really young ages and for a royal princess, um, you were really valuable commodity. Um, You could be married off to, any king or prince and those diplomatic marriages were really essential to kind of securing peace and to really securing um a royal family's kind of status in european politics so i mean it's not an unusual practice in the early modern period and, and margaret was absolutely a no exception you know as soon as these babies are born those marriage contracts are being negotiated <laughs> tell us what we know about her early life what do we know about her early life um not a huge amount actually um so she was the eldest surviving daughter of um Henry the 7th and Elizabeth of York um, we don't know a whole lot about her education actually um we know that she could she was trained in some languages so she spoke um and could write in french and English. She was taught basic writing skills. Um, she could play the lute. And she would have been trained in dancing and kind of embroidery skills. Um, there's a, a nice mention of her um, dancing with Henry VIII, and apparently when a royal um, ambassador came to visit, and apparently Henry VIII like flew his like threw his jacket off and was quite a, a performer. Where there isn't quite so much uh, discussion of Margaret in that context. Tell us, what was the Treaty of Perpetual Peace and what does it mean for Margaret? Okay, so the Treaty of Perpetual Peace was a peace treaty that was signed between James IV of Scotland and Henry VII of England in 1502. So it was designed to try and secure peace between the two countries because they'd been at war for like two centuries. So it was really designed to try and organise some stability and was quite um, like a fundamental part of Henry VII's diplomatic regimes at this time. Margaret's marriage um to james the fourth was a really central part of this um treaty and hence why she was such an important and valuable resource and why they started negotiating her marriage from such a young age she has a really so they marry her off don't they into the
2: scottish royal family yeah she has a really elaborate entry into scotland doesn't she
1: Yes, she does. Yeah, it's like any kind of royal fa- uh, royal wedding celebrated with jousts and feasts and all kinds of like public demonstrations. It must have been a really kind of, I keep, I think about this a lot. It must have been a really, um, a phenomenal experience for, I think she was 13 at that point. It must have been such a, an overwhelming and fascinating experience to be the centre of uh, these marriage um, celebrations. Um, What's really interesting is that Margaret's first surviving letter is written just shortly after her arrival in Edinburgh. And, um, she writes to Henry the seventh, um, telling him, telling him that she misses him and kind of reporting on some of the activities of her husband, James IV and, um, Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey. And it's such a fascinating document because the first three quarters of it are written in the hand of a scribe. And then 13 year old Margaret takes up the pen herself and finishes the letter in her own hand and says, you know, I, I wish that I was with you right now. Um, and really, you know, really shows the emotional affection and how much she misses her father so it must have been such a phenomenal experience for her and she must have known the weight that she was holding through this diplomatic marriage but it's really fascinating that you can still see some of those kind of personal insights to her as a 13 year old girl you know missing her family it must have been such a you know overwhelming in terms of like leaving home um for the first time so her first marriage,
2: tell us about it. Uh how long does it last? Um and also as well, so she's only thirteen when she gets there. So what happens dynastically? Is there much of a pause before she starts producing children?
1: Yeah, so we're not entirely sure um fully. There's um, a researcher called Dr. Amy Hayes, um, at the University of the Highlands at the Open University has researched a lot about Margaret's marriages and her um her birth. And she suggests that um Margaret actually wasn't necessarily intimate with James the fourth um, until she was about 16 um, because even though they married children um, they married princesses young they were really careful to kind of um, uh, protect them because they knew that you know um physical intimacy could be really damaging for them and, and Margaret's own grandmother Margaret Beaufort experienced this directly she
2: did didn't she it was only the one child henry the 7th because she was yeah. too young and it basically ruined her body
1: Completely. So, um, basically she, uh, her marriage, you know, it wouldn't have been kind of consummated probably until a few years after um, she arrived in Scotland. So um, Margaret and James IV were married for 10 years uh, before he died at the Battle of Flodden. Um, it seems to have been like a relatively happy marriage from what we can see. Um, I think James IV was apparently quite charming. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, there's a little bit of speculation that Margaret uh, got a little bit annoyed for the fact that James the um he had a mistress and he had a number of children by this mistress and that they were housed in Stirling castle. And uh, some people speculate that Margaret was annoyed by that, but there's not a lot of textual evidence or kind of contextual evidence to actually say that. Um, but I think it was probably a nice period in her life. She had like a strong established King as a husband and she would have had an important role as being a Royal mother and a wife. Um, but you know she kind of had some support and quite a safe position it's only after james the Fourth's death at the battle of flodden that things kind of get a little bit more difficult for her so then james well as you mentioned james dies can you tell us about the regency doesn't it involve an escape to england yeah um So basically, when James IV dies, in his will, um, it lists that Margaret is to become the governing regent of Scotland. It's quite an unusual position position of power for an early modern woman. She was kind of elected to rule on behalf of her young son, James V, and to rule the kingdom. She does this for, um, well... So she becomes regent in September 1513 and then sometime in uh, 1514 she marries, um, she marries for a second time. And it's after this second marriage that the Lords of Scotland decide that Margaret's forfeited the conditions of her regency. And they then call for um, a French nobleman, a gentleman called John Stuart, Duke of Albany, who's also a descendant of the Stuart line, to come over from France and to replace Margaret as the governing reg- of scotland it's at this point and shortly after um albany's arrival in scotland that margaret flees to england she's uh really heavily pregnant at this point with um, her first child with the uh, earl of angus apparently she's eight months pregnant and she flees over the anglo-scottish border on a horseback which i think i always kind of like that image of margaret you know escaping out of scotland
2: that's mad but what a ball ache
1: if <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you're eight months
2: pregnant <laughs>
1: Well, apparently she gave birth, uh, well, she gave birth like days after she arrived in Northern England and was really poorly for a number of months. And she didn't actually travel to the English court for about six months um, after she'd given birth. So, you know, she was really poorly. Mm. She's still quite young, isn't she? How old is she at that point? She's born in 1489 and that's 15, uh, 15. So she'd been like 26 or so. so. Yeah, quite young. I mean, not really young in terms of how many children she's had. I think she was on about child number six by that point, um, in terms of childbirth, but only the third surviving one to, um, over like about a year old.
2: Wow. Um, so I just want to before we're going through her biography but I've got to ask you because you have had such access to her correspondence you mentioned some stuff from when she was 13 but what kind of woman is she what do you know about her personality
1: what kind of woman is she that's a really good question so one thing that I've got to say is that um, not all of her correspondence survives okay so Um, In terms of like archival value, the um, correspondence that has been preserved is stuff that's really kind of quite dry and political, um, like politically related. So when she's trying to negotiate peace and things like that. So in terms of like that aspect, trying to understand the personality, you know, we only kind of have access to uh, so much information. But what I would say from that is the fact that she seems to be quite an obstinate and uh, persistent kind of character. She's always writing to Henry VIII saying, please help me with this matter. Please can I have some money? Um, my second husband, the, Duke, the Earl of Angus, is being a pain. Like, how can you treat me like this? So um, we can't fully know what she was like, but I like to think that she was quite a, um, a resourceful and, um, you know, kind of strong-willed character. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates
0: like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
1: You literally just mentioned her second husband. So yeah. she does marry a second time. Um, who was he and was it a successful marriage? <laughs> so um he's a young well he was a young Scottish nobleman called Archibald Douglas and he was the Earl of Angus I think he was a few years younger than Mar- uh, Margaret apparently he was quite dashing and she was swept away with him was their marriage a success i mean it's safe to say the overarching feeling is no um they spent a lot of their life estranged and um a- a margaret argued with them a lot and was constantly writing to Henry with the eight saying please like get rid of him um she she complains that he was always stealing um the rents from her dower lands and um, that he was occupying her houses with his mistresses and actually he goes on to um he's sent into exile into uh france because he's such a pain and <laughs> and um, sounds like
2: he, a complete dick doesn't it?
1: oh honestly it's just such a Not a great second husband, to be honest. Jay fourth looks way better in comparison. Um, And he even, like, takes over the government from her because he's just, like, so (laughs) power-hungry. Yeah, so was it a success? I would say no.
2: Yeah, (laughs) let's go no. no. So tell us about Margaret's coup.
1: So the coup is kind of an interesting episode in Margaret's life. So, um, so as I said, uh, John Stuart, Duke of Albany is, um, replaces Margaret as the governing regent of Scotland. Now, during his regency, he returns to France a few times and then comes back to Scotland, um, when required. Um, in July 1524, he goes back to France again. <laughs> He's got a wife. He's got a wife in France. Um, so you know he doesn't want to leave her all the time. Oh my time. god! I know. Yeah, it's quite it's quite controversial. And um, anyway, so he decides to go back to um, France to see his wife and to kind of engage in some uh, business matters in France. And it's quite difficult choosing who will replace um, him during his um, departure and it's in this situation that margaret and a collection of the lords of scotland decide to launch coup and to take control of the government again um and they say that they're declaring that james the fifth is old enough to rule in his own right i mean i think he's like that child at that point so yeah he's not...
2: and the 12 uh, year old boy i know right now I can't even like properly function in terms of putting a cycle helmet on so I'm gonna say no
1: exactly so people really label it as like Margaret resuming power again and kind of you know taking over the government I don't actually know I don't personally feel it's probably that kind of clear cut Margaret and the Duke of Albany had a really turbulent relationship there's times when she claims that he's um a threat to her life and to her son's life Um, and that's one of the reasons why she flees to England in 1515 but actually there's times in her life when they seem to get on quite amicably and I wonder if it was actually more of a kind of a convenient arrangement where Albany was happy to go back to France was kind of done with governing uh, Scotland and Margaret was kind of the next best fit so I don't think it's necessarily quite as simple as them uh, her taking you know taking power out of his hands like of force it was actually probably slightly more of a I think it's more of a mutual arrangement, to be honest, from what I've read of her correspondence and the the situation. Do do you know
2: what I love about her correspondence? I love the circumstances around her finally getting shot of this idiot husband and her third marriage. Because they show her brother, who we're not really going to mention because he's a douche, uh, to be a massive hypocrite later on, don't they? What does Henry say to Margaret when she says she wants a divorce?
1: oh it's just like just so so. it's like what's the point like you know basically it's like you're married in the eyes of god so you know at this point henry the eighth is theoretically a devout catholic so you don't really divorce and um but (laughs) you just i mean like just, just don't do it um but also Henry VIII was in quite close cahoots with Margaret's second husband um the Earl of Angus so and the Earl of Angus actually spends quite a lot of time at the court of Henry VIII so Henry's also against Margaret's marriage not only theoretically because of the religious issue but also because if she divorced him it means that he loses some of his influence that he gains through his uh, her second husband the Earl of Angus
2: oh yeah you heard it here he thinks that she has made her bed and therefore she should lie in it with regard to her marriage and this is bearing in mind what he's about to do to Catherine of Aragon
1: a hundred percent like what's really interesting is that it's actually um john stewart duke of albany this guy who's the uh governor of scotland that actually secures margaret's divorce for her with the pope so i think that's just it kind of shows you that actually their relationship was actually far was actually kind of really quite interesting and probably a bit more uh, dependable than margaret's relationship with her second husband
2: (laughs) oh my god it's
1: brilliant. Right. <laughs> the details are quite phenomenal actually when you sort of stay out loud.
2: So tell her about um sorry, tell us about the third marriage.
1: All right, so Margaret is finally divorced in um I think it's fifteen twenty eight. And so before this she's been estranged from the the Earl of Angus for some years and apparently she's been entertaining um a, a young courtier called Henry Stewart and um finally when uh she gets this divorce she goes ahead and marries Henry Stuart. It's really fascinating because one of um one of Margaret's like messengers is a guy called patrick sinclair he's a really fascinating character he's kind of been lost to the archives um because we don't really know very much about him and apparently there's a really nice scene that's recounted in correspondence where um margaret actually dismisses patrick sinclair who's been in her service for like 20 years um because he doesn't get on with henry stewart i think margaret probably should have taken that as a bit of a warning that henry stewart was uh not necessarily good for her but maybe in a kind of older years she thought well why not (laughs) (laughs) brilliant yeah so um henry stewart um he was eventually made lord methan by um james v but i don't think james v massively loved him either to be honest but maybe preferred him slightly more to the earl of angus he was a bit less um power hungry so you've got to credit margaret with generally wanting to improve relations between england and scotland don't you Yeah, I mean, you got to sort of think about that. This was like Margaret's kind of, this is what she was born and kind of educated and brought up to understand that her job was. Part of being an an early modern queen was that you're a royal mother, but also your entire job is to be a peacemaker and a mediator and to secure relations between your native and your marital families um so it was part of their kind of duty I guess but also it's really interesting this is what the whole PhD is actually on um is that Margaret um uses the role of mediator and the relations that she shares between England and Scotland after her husband James IV dies she uses this role to kind of negotiate power and greater agency because it's really one of those things that she's always useful for she's always useful for trying to facilitate peace or if things get tough Margaret's kind of like the nice link and the go-between so I think definitely it's safe to say that on numerous occasions Margaret is central to kind of facilitating peace and making sure that things run a little bit smoothly more smoothly between England and Scotland even though it's not perfectly straight sailing.
2: Wow so tell us about her death.
1: Yeah, so there's not we don't know huge amounts about her death. Um she died in October fifteen forty one. They think that she probably died from a stroke, but they're not entirely sure. And um she was buried at Perth. Um but unfortunately her remains don't survive. There's actually some research going on where they're trying to locate her remains, but um it's not necessarily uh like, they're not gonna find her basically mm. um and then apparently she wanted all of her belongings to be given to her daughter margaret douglas who <sighs> was living in england um uh, but unfortunately james v just took them and assumed them under the royal crown so kind of a bit of a, an anticlimax really i'm quite sad about her death you know she was such a kind of uh important figure it's a shame that we don't have um any more evidence of her final kind of uh days and kind of you know a, pu- a public memorial of her I would I'd really like to see that
2: <laughs> yeah that would be a, a little bit of making up for it wouldn't it
1: well I'd like this to be you know a nice tomb or something so I can say that I've stood within a meter of her unfortunately I'll never get to do that uh, or I'd quite like quite to see a crown or something but unfortunately we don't have anything <laughs> that <laughs> what um what is nice is that we do have um some correspondence just sent I think it's in the May of 1541 so just a few months before she dies and one of her final letters is sent to Henry VIII. And in this letter, she talks about, she apologises for not writing as much as she normally would. um, But she says that she's been um, comforting her son, James V, and his wife because they'd lost two sons, they'd died. So it kind of offers a nice insight into maybe the final year or so of her life where she's kind of quite central to that family unit and, and is providing kind of some support for her son and his wife. And, and the loss that they've suffered
2: she is hugely significant in the history of the monarchy isn't she why is that
1: well um due to henry the uh, lack well henry the and elizabeth the lack of descendants um it's margaret's great grandson james VI that actually goes on to become the king of scotland so um margaret's royal line and, and descendants actually be Um, the King of England, sorry, it's Margaret's uh, royal line and her descendants that go on to become um, the King and Queen of England eventually. So um, even though she's, it's kind of sad that she's been lost to history, um, despite being so incredibly significant in our monarchical kind of uh, history it is it's
2: mental because actually she is like the cornerstone on which the whole thing's turned the whole thing a- turns isn't she
1: a hundred percent so incredibly important but really kind of as you said you see with the the Tudors program she's either morphed into another character or just kind of she's often a really small footnote you know margaret married james the fourth of scotland and that's it even in biographies or kind of histories of the period she really isn't a central character so that's something i'm really working on and trying to kind of give her the limelight that she deserves
2: well you definitely sold us um
1: oh thanks
2: <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on to round out this character and make her uh, more than just a, a sort of uh, bit of levity in the tudors Uh, and sort of an object of shoehorning in some more sex scenes because more than that
1: she was a cool dude
2: she was and good luck with the book because I know you're working on putting this into print aren't you
1: I am yeah there is going to be an edition of her correspondence people will finally be able to get their hands on her letters and read what Margaret was like from her own perspective so hopefully people will get to see a bit more of Margaret through that
2: outstanding we look forward to it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> excellent thank
2: you join us on monday when woody's back woody's been off doing an amazing amount of hard slog on his own world war ii television network uh this is of course paul woodidge who was our bobfist coordinator and we promised him and we have been nagging him to come and talk about his own book with us and it's brilliant he's going to talk to us all about the story of two screaming eagle medics on d-day so don't miss that don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so